You know, uh, summer rules do apply here. Now I don't see the water thing back there. Is it get, getting filled up? Okay, is there one upstairs too today? Yep. Uh, summer rules apply, so at any time you have to get up and go get something to drink, there's water in the back, both upstairs and downstairs. That one's getting filled back up. Feel free to do that. Uh, we don't want anybody fainting. We had had a couple people faint in here. I like to think they were slain in the spirit, but we think it was actually a fainting episode. And so, <laughs> hey, listen, our last song really, uh, really appreciate that, Timur and gang. Uh, that last song really highlighted that uh, life is difficult. It is, it is a complicated thing. Even if you are a follower of Jesus, life is a difficult thing. In fact, I think it's some ways it's harder. Um, because you have the answer before you. Um, but there, there seems to be always these complications going there. We have had the chance, if you think about it now, this is our 71st time of opening the book of John. We have about eight, not even that, we have six, seven more, something like seven to, seven to nine more left in the Gospel of John. We've had the chance as a church for a little over a year and a half to just be looking and gazing at Jesus Christ. And you know, I think oftentimes if you're sitting here, and especially if you're an American, you kind of just take that for granted. Whatever your situations are in life, I don't know all the questions you're facing. I do know your answer. Your answer is Jesus. I know that. I know that's the answer. Oftentimes what, what really is helpful is when you're looking at a situation, whatever it may be, and you are able to look at something bigger than it, it helps you to get by with something that's smaller. For instance, if you have, uh, for instance, say you have a problem in your basement, and your basement trim isn't completed, for instance, and then you had a flood of four feet in the basement, you wouldn't care any longer about, I didn't have a flood, but I'm just using an example, you wouldn't care any longer about the trim. And that's in a lot of ways with the gospel of Jesus Christ is. As you look at the gospels, as you look and read about who Jesus is, not that your other things get smaller, they don't. They stay the same size. You just get something bigger in front of you. When we sang that last song, or excuse me, two songs ago, uh, when it said, there's a song that is sung by all the saints that have come. And every time we sing that song, I think of this particular building. For hundred and 12 years now, people have gathered in this room, and most of them are toes up right now. They're dead. But they've been singing a song, and a song is praise and glory and wisdom and honor and thanks belong to you, and they're going to sing that for eternity. And there's something bigger than you out there. And when you get a view of something bigger, and that bigger thing is God, an almighty God who is, who is omni-everything, your stuff gets back down to not omni-everything. People have looked at Jesus throughout history and have been radically transformed. Surprisingly so. Many of them, they thought they'd read the Gospels and they'd find this Jesus that is kind of the churchianity Jesus. And they met a Jesus a lot like the Jesus you are meeting as we're going through the Gospel of John. They've been radically changed. I want to introduce you to a few of these people. One of which is John Stott. He says, the person and work of Christ are the rock upon which the Christian religion is built. Take Christ from Christianity and you disembowel it. There's practically nothing left. Christ is the center of Christianity. All else is circumference. Jesus is that thing you look at. He's the bigger thing. 
It's not about a religion. It's about Jesus. David Winter said, It may seem far-fetched to suggest that a penniless preacher from a rural backwater of the Roman Empire offers us the key to the understanding of the purposes of God in human history. It may seem even more incredible to claim that he was and is the divine Son of God, the ultimate revelation to his creatures. Yet millions of apparently sane and intelligent people today, I'm looking at some, do make those claims as did his followers. Looking at Jesus as he's portrayed in the Gospels, like we've been looking at one of them, the Gospel of John, over the last year and a half, is radically, fundamentally shifts your thinking about everything. C.S. Lewis, Clive Staples, my buddy, I love this guy. He says, I'm trying here to be, he wrote this in the book Mere Christianity, which I highly recommend. It's out there on the book table if you'd like one. I, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he is a poached egg. That's English humor. <laughs> anyway, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon. Or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Lord and God. But let us not come away with any patronizing, patronizing nonsense about him being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. When you look at Jesus, everything changes. A man by the name of Chuck Colson, who was indicted in the Watergate scandal as a special counsel to President Nixon in the 70s. During that whole time, one of his buddies became a follower of Jesus and started introducing Chuck Colson to who Jesus Christ was, the real Jesus. He gave him a copy of Mere Christianity, C.S. Lewis's book. And Colson was reading through that book and came to statements like this, and Colson then said this, I knew the time had come for me. I could not sidestep the question, central question Lewis, or God, had placed squarely before me. Was I to accept without reservation Jesus Christ as Lord of my life? And so early that Friday morning, while I sat alone, staring at the sea I love, words I had not been certain I could understand or say fell naturally from my lips. Lord Jesus, I believe you. I accept you. Please come into my life. I commit it to you. With these few words that morning, while the briny sun churn, sea churned, came a sureness of mind that matched the depth of feeling in my heart. There came something more. Strength and serenity. A wonderful new assurance about life. A fresh perception of myself and the world around me. In the process, I felt old fears, tensions, and animosities draining away. I was coming alive to things I'd never seen before, as if God was filling the barren void I'd known for so many months, filling it to its brim with a whole new kind of awareness. Colson's life was radically changed when he met the real Jesus Christ. Not churchianity. Not even Christianity. Jesus. He met Jesus. Lastly, I want to read from J.B. Phillips, who 
who when he's most known for his translation of the New Testament into, um, what's it called, the Phillips version of the New Testament. Kind of in its time, in the 70s, it was kind of this hip, modern way of reading the, the Bible because all they really had then was a King Jimmy. And, but anyway, he said this. When he first started reading Jesus in the Gospels, it changed everything. Of course I had a deep respect, indeed a great reverence for the conventional Jesus Christ whom the church worshipped. But, but I was not at all prepared for the unconventional man revealed in these terse Gospels. No one could possibly have invented such a person. There was, this was no puppet hero built on, out of the imaginations of adoring admirers. This man, Jesus, so briefly described, rang true, sometimes alarmingly true. I began to see now why the religious establishment of those days wanted to get rid of him at all costs. He was sudden death to pride, pomposity, and pretense. Today we get the opportunity to see, I believe, the highest point and the lowest point of the Gospel of John. If you want to open up your Bibles, we're in John chapter 19. We're going to start in verse 28. We're going to look today at the highest and the lowest point of the ministry of Jesus Christ in the Gospel of John, which is his death. Everything comes to that, and it's the highest and the lowest point. And if you're here today, I hope, I hope you're here today, and what you want to do is just meet Jesus Christ. I don't care where you're at in your journey. I don't care if you've fallen for 50 years. I hope today you're here to meet Jesus Christ and to worship him for this. If you're here and you just set foot and you're thinking, I don't even know why I'm here. I thought they'd have air conditioning in here. I guess I'm wrong, but now it would look weird. I'm sitting in the middle of the pew. It would look funny to leave. I hope you're going to meet Jesus anyway. So why don't you open up your Bible to John chapter 19 or grab that insert. We'll go through this passage together. John 19, starting in verse 28. Later, knowing that all was now completed and so that the scripture would be fulfilled... Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. Remember, Jesus Christ is on the cross. Cor preached an outstanding message last week. If you haven't heard it, I encourage you to go online and listen to a message about the crucified Christ. They crucified him. It's an amazing thing. That's where he is. He's on the cross. It's his last few statements from the cross. Listen to what it says first of all. It says, later knowing all that all was now completed, Jesus is in control even on the cross. Complete control. John wants to make that abundantly clear. Jesus says, knowing, there it says, later knowing that all that was uh, supposed to happen happened. In other words, Jesus can say, I can finally relax. It's gotten to this point. I've, got, I've gotten crucified. That's exactly what needed to happen. Yes, it completely happened by the hand of God. Yes, Jesus orchestrated it. Yes, evil people conspired to make it happen. All those things are true. But at that moment, Jesus said, it's, it's, it's happening. And so he said, to fulfill scripture, he said, I'm thirsty. And they gave him some, they gave him some it's, a, it's like a real cheap wine that's watered down. This is not the same kind that he refused before. There was a wine that was offered to Jesus before, Cor maybe talked about this in a few weeks past, I haven't heard, that, that he refused. And what that was, was a wine mixed with a narcotic, so that it would dumb his senses. And he didn't want that. He wanted all of his senses there. 
But this was just a, 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 basically a grape juice that they were going to offer to him. Crucified people would, could be at different heights, probably all not all that high off the ground. And they offered it to him, and they gave him a sip to drink of this. This fulfilled the passage in Psalm 69, where it says, They put gall in my food and gave me vinegar for my thirst. And this, was the, this is the drink that he had. Psalm 69 is known as a prophetic psalm talking about all about the suffering servant of Jesus. And so this is part of it that they gave me, and it fulfills that scripture. Verse 30. When he, had, when he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Tim was reading before the passage about Abraham and his son Isaac. And in that, it, God tests Abraham and he says, I know that Isaac is your promised son. I want you to sacrifice him to me. And the passage says where Tim picked it up, it says, early in the next morning. So he gets up early to obey God. And he has to wait three days until this. There's, there's, there's a period of there where he has to wait and and there's no answer from God how he's going to solve this. He and Isaac go up to the place to be sacrificed. And, and Isaac has no, no clue what's about to happen. And he says, Father, the wood is here, but where's the sacrifice? The altar and the wood are here, but where's the, where's, where's the animal for the sacrifice? And Abraham says in one of the most prophetic things ever said is God will provide it. This was that ultimate answer. When Jesus says, it is finished, he was not, it was not a cry from the cross saying, oh, I'm sure glad that's over. This was a victory chant. This was a, it is accomplished. I have done it. And he bowed his head, which is a sign of reverence to God, and he gave up. He gave it up. He gave it. It's very important to see that. He gave up his spirit. Luke records this, this same event, Gospel of Luke. He says, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he had breathed, when he had said this, he breathed his last. And this was to fulfill the command in Psalm 31, where it says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. Redeem me, O Lord, the God of truth. Now, come a long way. We've come a long way since the fall of 2005 when we started out. John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. goes on to say, in Him was life, and that life was the light of men. All throughout, we've seen Jesus' ministry. We've seen all the things he's, he's done, taught, miracles, signs, showing how awesome he is, showing how, uh, how much of a real man he was. I mean, there's this crowd's trying to kill him, and he just walks through. I don't totally understand that, if he was just super macho, or if there was some spiritual force field around him, or what. But he, this is the Jesus we've come to love and adore, and here it is. It's come down to this. They've crucified him, and he gave up his spirit. 
It is finished. It's over. Now, if the gospel were to end there, whoo, this would not be a best-selling book. <laughs> this would not be the number one bestseller of all time. Jesus Christ would not be one that more paintings have been painted about, more songs have been written about, more poetry has been uh, written about than any other person in the world. If this is where it ended, it wouldn't be that way. It's not where it ends. We'll see that coming up shortly. But for right now, it is the low point. It is a low point. Huge divot we are in. The death of the Messiah. Knowing what we know now, on this side of the cross, it's also the highest point. Now, meanwhile, something else is going on. Verse 31. Now, it was the day of preparation, and the next day was to be a special Sabbath. So it's Friday, and the next day is a special Sabbath. We'll talk about that in just a second. Because the Jews did not want the bodies left on the crosses during the Sabbath, they asked Pilate, to have the legs broken and the bodies taken down. So these Jewish leaders go to Pilate and say, we got this special deal going on. We'll talk about that in just a minute, what's going on. Special deal going on. We don't want bodies. It's not really, it doesn't really look good in our tourist information to show crucified people. So if we could kind of get them off the crosses, now that would be great. And so the way they're going to do that is they're going to break the legs. The reason you did that is on a cross... The way you'd get your next breath is, is you'd, sometimes they'd even put a little peg down there so you could stand and, and make your crucifixion longer. Court talked about that last week, or even give them a seat to do so, make the crucifixion more painful. But if you were not able to push up and grab another breath, your body weight would hang down and you would die very quickly. So what they would do with a mallet is they would come by, and, and Roman soldiers are not much into swinging twice. They would just whack in fact, in 1968, they found a guy who'd been crucified in the first century by Roman, by the Romans. And it showed that on his, let me make sure I get this right, on his right leg, his tibia had been completely crushed, just shattered. And his left leg, both the tibia and the fibula had been broken through. And they just come through with this mallet, wham, bust that leg, wham bust that leg. And that's what they were about to do here. Now, can, can, can you imagine the, the, the oops that this is? Here it is. The religious rules of the day saying we want to have a nice nice festival here, so let's take a mallet to God and whack him upside the legs. Just think about that for a second. That is unbelievable. By the way, I, 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 if you read the Bible like I read the Bible, be very, very careful of religion. Religion in the Bible is something to be very, very careful of. It'll suck you up and, and spit you out. And you're saying, that's a weird thing for a pastor to say. What are you talking about here? Religion is where you choke Jesus out of the, you choke God out, and you get caught into your systems, into your doctrine, into your traditions, and no longer is it about God and Christ, it's about you doing certain things. That's exactly what these guys were into. And it's the epitome of religiosity to want to have a special festival, and by the way, let's go break Jesus' legs, God Almighty, so we'll die quicker. 
Look what happens. The soldiers, therefore, verse 32, came and broke the legs of the first man who had been crucified with Jesus and then, the lo- and then those of the other. But when they came to Jesus and found that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. That's important. We're going to see why in just a minute. Instead, one of the soldiers pierced Jesus' side with a spear, bringing a sudden flow of blood and water. So they don't whack on him. They take the spear and stick it up there, and out comes blood and water. Now, remember when I first read this, I thought, wow, you know, maybe Jesus wasn't all that tough. I mean, the other ones are still living. Why is Jesus already dead? We got to remember what Jesus went through. He hasn't slept for days. He's went through incredible mental anguish, so much so that he sweat blood, which actually is a medical condition, that people can die just from that. There's a certain amount of, 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 it's like a panic attack where you can sweat blood. He went through the betrayal of all his friends. He went through public trials, again, not having any sleep, that were totally fabrications. He went through a scourging, which is 40 lashes with a whip type thing with broken glass and pieces of lead and pieces of a wire attached where they grab onto his back and then pull off. If you saw the, uh, the movie Passion of the Christ, they got it right. That's exactly what a scourging is. Rips your flesh. Your back would just be torn, be just shreds. He went from there where they, then the soldiers came to mock him. They put these, these robes on him. And, and put these crown of thorns in him, whacked it in his hands, head, causing great bleeding here. And then they'd tear the, the, uh, the, the, uh, the robe they'd put on, they'd tear it off, which it, all that blood had coalesced onto it. It would just rip it and open those wounds again. It's amazing he ever made it to the cross. Not only that, he had to carry his cross to the crucifixion, which, of course, he stumbled and couldn't do. It's amazing he even made it that far. So, no, Jesus was not a wimp in any sort of any... Stretch of the imagination. Came to the point where they thought he was already dead. They, they spear him, and out comes water and blood. Now, this raises three questions for me. First one, what's this special Sabbath all about? What's the big deal about no bones being broken? And then, what's the whole blood and water thing? To understand the significance of Jesus' death, and why God, in his incredible genius plan made it all work this way, you got to understand Exodus chapter 12. You remember Exodus, huh? Go to the next one there. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you remember this. So. You do remember this. It, it's one of the most cheesy parts of the entire movie where the, the angel of death is coming and they're all inside and you hear the horrors outside, but the horrors kind of sound like somebody had bad gas or something. It's the weirdest, weirdest part of the movie. But anyway, that is what's going on. It's the Passover. That's what this special Sabbath is. It's the Passover. And it's from Exodus chapter 12. And I want to read you. It's great to read the whole chapter. I'm not going to do that. I want to read just a portion of it. This is happening. It's one of the, the last plagues that's going to be given to Egypt so the people of Israel can get out. And Pharaoh has resisted everything, even lied to him, saying, yeah, okay, if you just make the frogs go away, I'll let your people go. And the, the God makes the frogs go away, and he, Pharaoh says, nope, I like the slaves, I'm keeping them, on and on and on. It finally comes down to this, where the firstborn and every family is going to die, unless something, and here it comes. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron in Egypt, this month is to be for you the first month. 
the first month of your year. Tell the whole community of Israel that on the tenth day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family, one for each household. If any household is too small for a whole lamb, they must share one with their nearest neighbor, having taken into account the number of people there are. You are to determine the amount of lamb needed in accordance with what each person will eat. The animals you choose must be year-old males without defect, and you may take them from the sheep or the goats. Take care of them until the 14th day of the month, when all the people of the community of Israel must slaughter them at twilight. That's important. Then they are to take some of the blood and put it on the sides and tops of their door frames of the houses where they eat the lambs. That same night they are to eat the meat roasted over the fire, along with the bitter herbs and bread made without yeast. Do not eat the meat raw or cooked in water, but roast it over the fire. Head, legs, and inner parts. Do not leave any of it till morning. If some is left till morning, you must burn it. This is how you are to eat it, with your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. Eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. And I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And where I see the blood, I will pass over you. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. This is a day you are to commemorate for generations to come. You shall celebrate as a festival to the Lord, a lasting ordinance. It's a big deal. Now, I know if you're like me, sometimes you get lost in the details. And you're kind of going, da, 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 detail, detail, detail. If you don't do this, the angel of death, the destroyer, will come and toast your whole house. Ah, let's go back to those details again. What are those details? Okay, one lamb, how many people? Okay, sounds good, good. What part of the door? Great, that part, this part. Good, got it. Very important. It's very important. When do I slaughter? At twilight. On Friday, twilight. Verse 40 of Exodus 12. Now the length of time the Israel's people lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years to the very day, all the Lord's divisions left Egypt because the Lord kept vigil that night to bring them out of Egypt. On this night, all the Israelites started to keep vigil to honor the Lord for generations to come. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, These are the regulations for the Passover. No foreigners to eat of it. Any slave you have brought bought may eat of it after you have circumcised him but a temporary resident and a hired worker may not eat it it must be eaten inside one house take none of the meat outside the house do not break any of the bones the whole community of Israel must celebrate it this whole thing this whole thing is a setup for Jesus the slavery the bondage, Pharaoh, the Passover, and the Lamb is all a setup for Jesus. When was Jesus crucified? The afternoon on Friday. Were his bones broken? No. He was and is the Passover Lamb. He is the only way God will ever go over your door and not destroy everyone in. Why would a lamb take away your sin? It wouldn't. And it didn't. It's foreshadowing. It's a type to show you Jesus Christ. Jesus was our Passover lamb. What about the blood and water? 
Uh, I got my pages mixed up here. What about blood and water? Page. There we go. Medical doctor. There he is right there. His name is David Tohurska. Said to confirm that a victim was dead, the Romans inflicted a spear wound through the right side of the heart. When pierced, a sudden flow of blood and water, blood and water came from Jesus' body. The medical significance of the blood and water has been a matter of debate. One theory states that Jesus died of a massive myocardial infarction in which the heart ruptured, which may have resulted from his falling while carrying the cross. Another theory states that Jesus' heart was surrounded by fluid in the pericardium, which constricted the heart and caused death. The physical stresses of crucifixion may have produced a fatal cardiac arrhythmia. The stated order of blood and water may not necessarily indicate the order of appearance, but rather the relative prominence of each fluid. In this case, a spear through the right side of the heart would allow the pleural fluid, fluid built in the lungs, to escape first, followed by a flow of blood from the wall of the right ventricle. The important fact is that the medical evidence support that Jesus did die a physical death. There's no doubt. You can't fake it. Now, that's important because there have been people in history who have survived crucifixion. In fact, there have been some nut jobs in the last 50 years who, to make their points, have crucified crucified themselves for a few hours with nails in the whole works. Yeah, I know. I know. There's a lot on Google. So, I... uh, maybe it's true, I don't know. But I was just reading about these people who, in the 60s and 70s, to make their points for activist causes, have crucified themselves to buildings for a limited amount of time. But when you spear someone in the heart and out comes blood and water and a flow of it, that, by the way, that's the only blood Jesus had left. It proves that you're dead and Jesus was dead. Verse 35, the man who sought has given testimony. His testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth and he testifies so that you may believe that John saying, I saw this. I saw it. He was dead. These things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. And as another scripture says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Mel Gibson in his movie, The Passion, if you remember that movie, there's a scene where, where you see the, the, the nail being driven, and Mel Gibson demanded that he use, they use his hand. It's the only part of the movie he appears. That's his hand driving the nail. Go to the next one. And it will pour out on the house of David, this is the, the prophecy, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and supplication. They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. So they'll look at the cross. They'll look at the dead Christ. And they'll mourn. But then something else is going to happen. Zechariah says, On that day a fountain will be opened to the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem to cleanse them from sin and impurity. There it is. The beauty of the cross. When we go through uh, communion, if I'm not busy doing other things, praying for people, whatever, almost anywhere I am in the entire United States when I take communion, before I take it, I try to open up my Bible to one passage. 
open up my Bible to Hebrews chapter 10. And I read this. I think about what happened on the death of Jesus. It says, the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. All the Old Testament says it's just a shadow. It's just a shadow. The whole, the whole get me out of, out of Egypt thing, that's a shadow of the reality. For this reason it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to, to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. But those sacrifices are an annual reminder of sins because it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats and lambs and anything else to take away sins. Therefore, when Christ came into the world, he said, Sacrifice and offering you did not desire, but a body you prepared for me. With burnt offerings and sin offerings you were not pleased. Then I said, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, O God. First he said, Sacrifice and offerings, burnt offerings, and sin offerings you did not desire, nor were you pleased with them, although the law required them to be made. Then he said, Here I am. I have come to do your will. He sets aside the first to establish the second. He sets aside the Old Testament to do something brand new. The reality, not the shadow of the reality, the real reality. And by that will, we have been made holy through the sacrifice of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. Day after day, every priest, is talking about the Old Testament now, stands and performs his religious duties. Again and again, he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. But when this priest, when Jesus, had offered for, one, for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. Because he's tired? No! Because he's done! Since that time, he waits for his enemies to be made his footstool, because by one sacrifice, he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. And then I take communion. Because it ain't about you. It ain't about me. It ain't about how sinful you are. It's about how perfect that sacrifice was of the cross. You may be here today, you might be the worst sinner in the room. I think I am, but you, you might be. We could all take a vote, maybe we'd say you are. <laughs> and you ain't got nothing. Christ died for the worst of sins. And it was perfect. Perfect, because it's infinite. Have you committed an infinite number of crimes? Ixnay. It can be covered. Now, what do you do with all this? I told Corey this morning, I said, when you have three weeks off, and you're loaded for bear, you've been listening to other preachers, uh, you leave a lot on the cutting room floor. And I did. I have so much more I want to say. But I want to close by one of my heroes. Uh, I, want, I want to read a, a closing that probably my favorite preacher of all times, Charles Hayden Spurgeon. Uh, he died almost 100 years before I was even born. And he preached the message in 1872 on this passage. It's called, On the Cross After Death. Just about how they speared him. He goes through and he talks about a lot of things we've talked about. Then he closes with five things. And I'd like to give you those five things. In fact, I'd like to pretty much just go through what Spurgeon talked about as he closed that sermon in April 3rd, 1887. And see if any of this lands with you as a way of application. 
He calls them instructions or lessons. He's going to give five of them. The first one. The first instruction intended for us is that see what Christ is to us. He is the Passover lamb, not a bone of which was broken. You believe it. Come then and act upon your belief by feeding upon Christ. Keep the feast in your own souls this day. That sprinkled blood of His has brought you safety. The destroying angel cannot touch you or your house. The Lamb Himself has become your food. Feed on Him. Remove your spiritual hunger by receiving Jesus into your heart. This is the food whereof if a man eat, he shall live forever. Be filled with all the fullness of God as you now receive the Lord Jesus as God and man. You are complete in Him. You are perfect in Jesus Christ. Do not merely learn this lesson as a doctrine, but enjoy it as personal experience. Jesus, our Passover, is slain. Let him be eaten. Let us feast on him. And then be ready to journey through the wilderness in the strength of of this divine meat until we come to the promised rest. Second, see men's treatment of Christ. They have spit on him. They have cried, crucify him, crucify him. They have nailed him to the cross. They have mocked his agonies. And he is dead. But man's malice is not gluted yet. That means it's not went to its full yet. This last act of man is Christ must be to pierce him through. That cruel wound was the concentration of man's ill treatment of Jesus. His experience at the hands of our race is summoned up in the fact that that they pierced him to the heart. That is what men have done to Christ. They have despised and rejected Him that He dies, pierced to the heart. Oh, the depravity of our nature. Some doubt whether it it is total depravity. It deserves a worse adjective than that. There is no word in the human language which can express the venom of the enmity of man to his God and Savior. He would wound him mortally if he could. Do not expect that men will love either Christ or you if you are like him. Do not expect that Jesus will find room for himself in the inn, much less that he will set on the throne, much less that he will be set on the throne by guilty, unrenewed men. Oh no. Even when he is dead, they must insult his corpse with a spear thrust. One soldier did it, but he expressed the sentiment of this age. This is what the world of sinners did. For him who came into the world to save it. Third. Now learn in the next place what Jesus did for men. Beloved, that was a sweet expression in our hymn just now. They must have just sung a hymn in the church where he was preaching. Even after death his heart, for us its tribute poured. In his life he had bled for us drop by drop. The bloody sweat had had fallen to the ground. Then the cruel scourges drew from him purple streams. But as a little store of life bud was left near his heart, he poured it all out before he went his way. It is, it is a materialistic expression, but there is something more in it that is, than mere sentiment. That there remains among the substance of this globe a sacred relic of the Lord Jesus in the form of that blood and water. As no atom of matter ever perishes, that matter remains on earth even now. He says that the blood of Jesus that was shed on the cross is still on the earth. His body has gone to glory, but the blood and water are left behind. I see much more in this fact than I will now attempt to tell. 
O world, the, the Christ has marked thee with his blood and he means to have thee. Blood and water from the heart of God's own Son has fallen down upon this dark and defiled planet and thus Jesus has sealed it as his own. And as such, it must be transformed into a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwelleth righteousness. O dear Lord, when he had, our dear Lord, when he had given us all he had and even resigned his life on our behalf, then parted with a priceless stream from the fountain of his heart, for with there came blood and water. Oh, the kindness of the heart of Christ that did not only for a, for a blow return a kiss, but for a spear thrust return streams of life and healing. Fourth, I can see also in this passage the safety of the saints. It is marvelous how full of eyes the things of Jesus are. For his unbroken bones look backward to the Passover lamb. But they also look forward throughout all the history of the church that day when he shall gather all the saints in one body and none shall be missing. Not a bone of his mystical body shall be broken. He's talking about the church here. There is a text in the Psalms which saith of the righteous man and all the righteous men are conformed in the image of Christ. Lie keepeth, he keepeth all of his bones. Not one of them is broken. I do rejoice in the safety of Christ's elect. He shall not permit a bone of his redeemed body to be broken. For all the chosen seed shall meet around the throne, shall bless the conduct of his grace, and make his glories known. A perfect Christ there shall be in the day of his appearing, when all the members of his body shall be joined to their glorious head, who shall be crowned forever. Not one living member of Christ shall be absent. Not a bone of him shall be broken. And fifth, I'm not quite done, for I must add another lesson. We see here the salvation of sinners. Jesus Christ's side is pierced to give to sinners the double cure of sin, the taking away of its guilt and power, but better than this, sinners are to have their hearts broken by a sight of the crucified. By this means also they are to obtain faith. They shall look upon me, whom they have pierced, and they shall mourn for him. Beloved, our Lord Jesus Christ, came not only to save sinners, but to seek them. His death not only saved those who have faith, but it creates faith in those who have it not. The cross produces the faith and repentance which it demands. If you cannot come to Christ with faith and repentance, come to Christ for faith and repentance, for he can give them to you. He is pierced on purpose that you may be pricked to the heart. His blood which freely flows is shed for many for the remission of sins. What you have to do is just to look. And as you look, those blessed feelings which are the marks of conversion and regeneration shall be wrought in you by the sight of Him. Oh, blessed lesson. Put it into practice this morning. Oh, that in this great house many now, uh, may, many may now have done with self and look to the crucified Savior. Have done with self and look to the crucified Savior. Something bigger than you. And find life eternal in him. For this is the main end of John's writing this record. And this is the chief design of our preaching upon it. We long that you may believe. Come ye guilty. Come and trust the son of God who died for you. Come ye foul and polluted. Come and wash in the sacred stream poured out for you. There's life in a look at the crucified one. There's life at this moment for every one of you who will look to him. God grant you may look and live for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. That's my prayer for you too. The same thing Jesus says. 
Or the same thing that's prophesied at the very end of this passage where it says, they will look on the one they have pierced. Let's pray. Oh Jesus, that's only going to come as a gift of you. It's only going to come as a gift of you if you let us look upon you. We're the ones who put the nails. We're, we're the soldier who stood there and speared you. We're Judas who kissed you on the cheek. We're the, we're the disciples who ran away. We're all of those. And it's only going to come by your grace that you let us see you. Let us see something bigger than ourselves. Let the, let the gospel account this morning so grip us that we're different. Not because of its story. It's not a myth. Because it's objectively true. There literally was a Jesus Christ. He literally went to the cross. He literally said, it is finished. And bowed his head and gave up his spirit. So Jesus, by a gift this morning, I pray that whatever distractions may be in this room, whether they're things that are bothering us in our mind, whether there are shortcomings we have, whether it's the heat in the room, whatever it is, this morning would you grant us a gift, even, even now by your Spirit, and give us a gift of seeing you. And would our life so be transformed that whatever fears, whatever anxieties, whatever sins, whatever it is that's entangling us, you would give us a vision of you that everything else would come back into focus. We pray this morning. Don't let us leave here without getting a vision of the pierced one. Pray this all in Christ's name.